Hello, and welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, and I believe that the best leaders don't try to do it alone. As the CEO of Bregman Partners, my mission for over 30 years and the mission of this podcast is to help successful people like you close your leadership gaps, grow as leaders, and inspire your team, inspire all the people around you to get great results. Here with me today is David Marquet. He was the captain uh, of the U.S. Navy of a submarine, nuclear submarine called the Santa Fe. He wrote the book, Turn the Ship Around, A True Story of Turning Followers into Leaders. It's a fantastic book. I thoroughly enjoyed reading it. I have some interesting questions that David and I will talk about uh, in the next 20 minutes or so. David was a top graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy. He commanded, as I said, the nuclear-powered fast attack submarine, the USS Santa Fe, from 99 to 2000. While he was the captain there, it won numerous awards for being the most improved ship in the Pacific, most combat effective ship in the squadron. And uh, he will talk with us a little bit about how he made that happen and how the team on his ship made that happen. David, welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Hey, thanks, Peter. Thanks for having me on your show. So, David, the big idea behind the book. Yeah, so I had this experience as the captain of a submarine going in with the idea that leadership's about taking control, giving orders, making things happen. And through sort of a series of fortuitous accidents, was placed in a situation where that just wasn't going to work and ended up running this experiment, so to speak, where we gave as much control as possible to the crew. We pushed authority to information as opposed to the typical channeling of information to authority. And we had tremendous success in the short run. We went from basically the worst submarine to the best in terms of retention and performance. And that was all great. We won awards. And then we all, you know, we all went on our merry way. But what happened over the next 10 years was really interesting. We had a highly disproportionate number of officers and crew go on to become captains of submarines, uh, one of my officers went on and is currently running a 7,000-person shipyard. And this took 10 years to play out. And what, but what, So what I realized was the real story wasn't in this turnaround because I think you can kind of go and you can do traditional leadership. You can bark a bunch of orders and, quote, turn around an organization. But because of the way we did it, the real story was all these leaders that we created and and it's approximately three to three and a half times what the statistical average ought to be for a submarine. And that was a story I thought uh, worth telling. It's actually a really interesting story. And when you think about really powerful leadership, I was in this conversation with John Maxwell about what the pinnacle of leadership is. It's leaders who build leaders out of leaders, meaning that that if I'm if I'm a leader I can build a team of leaders who themselves build a team of leaders. That's the strength of, of really strong leadership. So, right. so you've met that criteria, which is great. <laughs> yeah, thanks. And, I, and it, you know, you kind of need to master execution. You kind of need to master the, – there's some prerequisites, right? You need to, quote, lead yourself, and, and then you need to actually be able to get stuff done. But once you get through that, I think there's this – you know, there's one more step on the ladder. And for me, it was the most – satisfying one because 
uh, when you look around and you got these people all around you that are thriving and doing things that they sometimes they themselves never believed that they could achieve, it's tremendously gratifying. So you talk about attention when you're talking about leading, and and I love this shift that you made from command and control, which a lot of us think of when we think of leadership, whether or not we try to be that kind of leader, there's still a gut knee-jerk reaction for many people that leadership is you step in, you take control. You, You talked about this tension, which I think is very interesting, of giving up control but maintaining full responsibility. Yeah. And I think that that's a very challenging uh, tightrope to walk. Can you explain a little bit about that and, you know, both what you mean by that and also how you do that, how you could be responsible for things you don't control? Well, I think, you know, so the problem is because we feel like we're responsible, that's the, that's the motivation to to be in control. Because you could look in the mirror and say, well, if this, you know, bus is going to run aground, Uh, At least I want to be able to look at myself and know that I was the guy who caused it. And that motivates um, inefficient. It's not necessarily wrong, but I just don't think it's the most effective leadership behavior because you're not leveraging your team, the thinking in your team. Uh, So one of our things was it was a very it was almost a simplistic behavior based approach. We I never tried to convince people to change their mindset. I just tried to convince them to change their behavior. And a lot of times it was just say something different. So instead of saying, for example, tell me what to do, or I'd like to do this, or I request permission to do this, they would say, I intend to do this. And what happens is like, you still, like you still own responsibility at at some point, but when someone comes to you and says, I intend to do this, they're making the decision, they're being proactive, they're coming forward with the initiative. And what happens as a leader is you're sitting back and all day long people are coming to you with action. And in an attempt-based organization, if, if you don't answer your email or you're absent that day, it happens, right? Hey, I intend to you know, initiate this new program. I intend to uh, add the software feature. And you don't answer, it happens. In a normal permission-based organization, when they say, well, request permission to add the feature to the software and you don't answer, the team's just sitting around waiting. It's profound what you're saying, which is that you're actually not you're not just talking about behavior. You're saying a slight change in language that literally if you shift the language that people use from may I to I intend to, that that fundamentally shifts the dynamic in the organization. Exactly. And and we now have there's brain science, which shows that this is how your brain works. You change your words and then it causes your the synapses in your brain to rewire as opposed to what we normally think is, oh, well, I'm going to convince people to be a certain, I'm going to convince them to be empathetic or convince them to be a team, and then they're going to act like a team. I'll give you another example. Uh, we, we were fighting fires on the submarine, and when I first got there, we weren't that we weren't that good, and there was a lot of they. You know, it's like, well, they didn't hang up the hose. They didn't hang up the equipment. They didn't change the batteries on the thermal imager. And I was like, well, who's all this they? I got pissed off. I was like, there's no they on Santa Fe. And, you know, rhyme. So how could you forget it? And uh, so we said, we just have to say the word we. And then so pretty soon, you know, uh, the very next day, exactly nothing happened. But pretty soon the guys in navigation would come up and they would want to, you know, bitch about the guys in engineering. And the guys in engineering, you know, they uh, turned the power off for maintenance. But they would have to say we. And then the chiefs would talk about the officers as we and the officers about the enlisted guys as we and and engineering about supply. And pretty soon it was like we there was this sense of we. 
but we just changed the language. And um, the cool thing was then when people would visit the ship, they'd go, oh, my God, this is an amazing culture of teamwork. And I would sort of laugh at them and I would say, no, 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 no. We don't have a culture. What we have is a rule. <laughs> because what, what happened was it did feel like a culture of teamwork, but it was after we practiced saying we. And so in your organization, here's a fun drill. Start walking down the hallway, grab one of your people, walk down the hallway and say, hey, tell me about these guys. Oh, we're in marketing. OK, what about here? Oh, they're, you know, they're in, in uh, you know, customer service. And as soon as you go from we to they, that's where the team ends. Doesn't matter what the poster on the wall says. So when you think about sort of supplier engineering or customer service versus marketing, as you're talking about, are you saying that the marketing people, when they're talking about customer service initiatives, should say we? Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. When you go up to the boss or you go to a meeting and you say we, and I can tell how much, how strong the team is because I'll see, I'll like, I'll just listen for the language and, and I'll say, do that, do that person, you know, is, is, or do they say they, or do they say we? You know, we're trying to do this initiative. Oh, no, it's those people in HR. So when, you know, let's say there's a screw up and marketing <laughs> and the screw up happens in customer service. Right. And marketing goes, you know, we made a mistake. But yes. isn't there something almost a little passive aggressive about that? Like in what way does it do they real? does marketing really believe that they themselves made the mistake? Did supply really believe that they made a mistake if engineering screwed something up or? Or help me understand when things go wrong, how that operates. They do because they're not thinking. They're not thinking we. Uh, they're not thinking we uh, in marketing are okay, but they in customer service made the mistake. What they're thinking is we in X Y Z company made a mistake. So, so in other words, they're thinking at the team level. They're not thinking. Oh, my segment or we we in Phoenix are okay, but they in Boston screwed it up. So how far does that extend? Does that extend to the point where marketing should be um, trying to solve a customer service issue? Maybe. One of the most powerful things uh, that, that uh, we tried was in a company, a software company, where the, uh, the CEO wanted the coders to be more empathetic. And, you know, we could give them lectures about being empathetic all day long and, you know, having the perspective of the customer. But what he did was he just made them uh, answer uh, customer service tickets for two weeks, and boy, were they pissed off about that, right? Oh no, that's not below me. You know, I make 150 grand. You know, and these guys just do 35 grand. You know, that's way below me. But it's like, no, nope, I'm holding the line. And at the end of that, they're like, oh my goodness, and they were so much good better. But the point was, we don't give them a lecture about being empathetic. We say, <laughs> we say, do this. And then we train our brains to be. I I I can't even. I dodged your question. Whatever it was. No, but actually, it's kind. Of, yeah, no, but it's actually kind of interesting because there's a lot of research. This is supported by social scientists that I talked to. It's supported actually by you know a number of different sources. There's there's a lot of research that points to the fact that you don't change mindsets in order to change behavior. You change behavior, and that changes mindsets. It's exactly what you're saying. Exactly, and and I, I was sort of forced into it by accident. I mean when. My story was I was I went to the submarine at the very last minute. There was a submarine that wasn't doing well. I was all trained up to take command of of one ship, and the other guy quit. And they said, "No, you got to go take command of this other ship, the Santa Fe." And it was not a ship I was trained for. It was you know bad morale and bad performance, but that wasn't the problem. The problem was it was different, and all the equipment was different. And the first thing I do is I I, I kind of give this order, which can't be done, and the crew like tries to do it. 
And I was like, well, what are you guys thinking? And they're like, well, you told us. And I, and, and I had this mindset shift where in the past when I gave a bad order, I was like, you know what? I just need to give better orders. But there was no way that could happen. Like the complexity of a nuclear submarine overwhelms you. And so my mind went to this. It said, you know, the problem is I'm the one giving orders. That's the problem. And in, in our culture, we rarely go there. So you think about like the captain of the Costa Concordia, the cruise ship that ran aground. And the, the guy was captain, uh, uh, his name was Scatino. Right, is off the coast of Italy. He gives a quote bad order to sort of go too close to this island, and everyone lit up on that. This has nothing to do with the issue. The issue is why was the captain of the cruise ship actually giving the orders for where the cruise ship could, should run? Who certified him to be the captain? Who designed the procedures on the bridge of that ship so that the captain was giving orders? Because when the top guy gives an order, the probability of everyone else saying, you know, I think that's a stupid idea is very, very low. We want that to happen. But it won't happen. The way it happens is by the guy at top shutting his mouth and saying, well, you guys tell me. That's so interesting. So, you know, one of the questions that I was going to ask you is um, trust. You know, how do you yeah. how do you build trust in 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 these folks? And on the other hand, what you're telling me is actually the the real issue is we shouldn't have the kind of trust in ourselves as the top leader that we can make all those kinds of decisions, that the issue isn't should you have trust in in the other people in the organization the issue that you should be questioning is are you trusting yourself too much to make all these kinds of decisions right 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 we see over and over again that if you want to have a bad um in, uh, toxic culture you you can combine sort of these uh output based um objectives with a authoritative culture like for example Volkswagen right but We'll leave that aside for a minute. So first, I want to talk about trust. Now, there's I had an advantage on a submarine, which most of your business uh, leaders don't have, which is we all die together. There's no such thing as half a submarine sinking. There's no escape pod. So <laughs> not only that, I mean, I have to say, you know, one of the things I'm curious about and is probably outside the scope of this conversation, but I've been on a submarine and how you live on that thing for, you know, months at a time. It, uh, you know, under the water yeah. is, blows me away. It's kind of a claustrophobic experience. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah you bury yourself in work like anything. Uh, right. <laughs> so, so um, but let me get so this. So you die together. You were saying yeah, you die yeah, together. Yeah. So let me get this diatribe on, uh, on trust out. So so the idea is most people, they, they, they conflate, they say trust equals trust plus competence. So, so I'm visiting you. You're running me out to the airport. You turn right. I think you should have turned left. Do I, quote, trust you? If I think you're trying to get me to the airport, then I trust you. And whether we should turn right or left is simply an issue of reading the map and the local traffic. It's not an issue of trust. It's an issue of competence. And, and the reason why we found it very important to break these two things apart is because when, trust is an emotional issue. So when you come to me and say, I think we should turn right, I think we should include this feature, and I say, well, explain that to me. You say, well, if, you, if we've commingled trust and competence, it feels icky. You say, well, don't you trust me? I say, well, yeah, I trust you, but I just need to understand why you think that's right. It doesn't mean I agree with you. It doesn't mean you're right. It doesn't mean I'm right. Trust means we're both heading for the same endpoint. And when you tell me something, you believe it's the right thing to do. It does not mean it's the right thing to do. Because we want to make it easy to challenge whether we should turn right or left without the emotional baggage. And most organizations that, that we visit have mixed those two things up so befuddled that when someone says, well, explain to me why you think that's the right thing to do, it feels 
it's scary and provocative for the workers and they shut up and so they stop sharing sharing their thing and it's because of this issue of of we've misinterpreted what trust really is let's explore that for a second because i think there are two different kinds of trust right yeah. the trust that you're talking about which is that i trust that you believe what you're saying to me, right? Right. That's one level of trust, which is you're not lying to me. You want to get me to the airport. You believe that this is the right mode of action. That's one level of trust. There, there's another, which you're saying shouldn't be conflated, but also I think I'm sort of curious about your view around trust related to this, which is I trust that your actions will result in the outcomes that we're looking for, meaning that's where it's conflating with competence, but how do you trust in competence? Meaning if if you are telling me you want to do something and I don't trust that you're competent, you could believe as much as you want what you're saying. Yeah. It's still not going to get us to the outcome we're looking for. Yeah, but I just, just Peter, for us, we just separate the words because we think, uh, you know, you don't want to be in a situation where you say, well, I mean trust definition one here, but trust definition two there. We, we talk about quote, demonstrating confident, competence, showing competence. But because the other issue is, let's say you make a decision. Hey, we're going we're gonna to include this feature in the software. And there's a problem. Now you say, I don't trust you anymore, right? Well, that, that, like, do you really not trust the person? Or do they just, you know, in a world where experimentation and the speed of learning is really important, do we just run an experiment where we learn something? So I... Yeah, I, I, I realize I'm kind of running against the pack when I say that when you use the word, I, when, I'm, when I'm encouraging people not to use the word trust or I trust you to make this decision. Uh, but I can tell you on the submarine, it was hugely powerful because we would have these knockdown, drag out, throwing wads of paper at each other arguments about turning right or turning left. But there was no emotional sting to it because everyone knew that there was this high level of trust. In other words, we knew everyone was trying to do the best. And that's important. Yeah. And that's important. And so I see that difference. And you've talked a lot about language. Yeah. So I, I respect that you're saying we have to be very clear about our language that I can trust you, meaning I don't believe you are misleading. I don't believe you're trying to work against us. I don't believe that you're undermining any of this. I believe that you're doing your best and that you are you know, focused on the same larger outcome that we're all focused exactly. on. And that is a basic trust. There's another piece which says, are you competent to make this particular decision? That's a separate issue. I, and, and yes, and yes. And I like to separate those two conversations. Um, that makes sense. And also the competence changes. In some ways, it's much harder to change trust the way you're describing it than it is to change competence. Ex Meaning if you do something that all that undermines me, it's going to be harder for me to trust you again. If you do something that showed some lack of knowledge or some lack of capability, well, we could train for that. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. because the, the response is different. And like, it's like, do you trust your wife? Well, yeah, I trust my wife. So I say, hey, where should we go to breakfast this morning? You know, and I'm thinking Denny's and she, she's thinking the Ritz. Well, I, you know, I tr like whatever, I trust her. But that doesn't mean I trust her to, to make a decision to start up the nuclear reactor. And so what, what you end up in that situation is, well, I trust you for this, but I don't trust you for that. Like that to me just made no sense. Either I trust this human being or I don't trust this human being. Got it. Um, you talk about guiding principles that really led the way for you and actually uh, helps to uh, make sure that everyone's on the same page. Yeah. 
I'm curious about what happens when those guiding principles conflict. Like, for example, <laughs> you know, initiative is one of them and teamwork is one yeah. of them. But what happens, for example, when teamwork conflicts with initiative? Uh -huh. So this is always the problem because um, the, there's a lot of we do a bunch of work with power companies and hospitals and safety is a big deal and safety is very important. And so they say, well, safety first. OK, well. If safety is the only thing, then I'm just going to shut down the shop because <laughs> there's inherent danger in running a power plant or a hospital. So it's always in, intentions, right? So that safety, comma, with operations, comma, with delivering, you know, product, whatever it happens to be. And that's when we call it, um, that's when you have these knockdown drag out fights. We, and there's certain things. Uh, that people were doing meetings, which can help this or not help it. So number one is we call embrace the dissent, embrace dissent. So when you go in a meeting, typically we say, hey, we're going to let's talk about this. Should we add this feature or not? Let's talk about it. Now everyone vote. That's the wrong way to do it. What you'll do is basically get people mirroring back mostly what they think the group wants. What, we, what you should do instead is say, OK, I want everyone to vote. Here's a card. Vote yes or no. Should we include the feature or not? Then you find the outliers. Or, or maybe it's a score, score at 1 to 99. And then you find the outliers and you investigate the outliers. Then you have the conversation. Uh, but otherwise what happens is you sort of narrowed everyone's thinking already by the fact that you've discussed it. So, so And then you know, at some point you're clear who's the owner. The owner makes a decision. And not everyone's always going to be happy with every decision. But the, the difference is they felt like they were heard because we actually embraced the dissenter. Leaders need to say, OK, when you come up to me and say, you know, I really think we should turn right here. And I'm like, you know what? I'm totally sure we should turn left. And so most time we say, well, let me ask you a question. Don't you think we should turn left? And so there's this weird manipulation, Socratic manipulation that happens. This is not the right way to be. The way you want to be is create a blank space in your mind where you say, you know what? Peter might be right. Maybe this time we should really turn right. And then you ask questions. Well, Peter, tell me about that. You know, what do you know? Do you, have, you know, is there, is there a bridge down? And then at the end, you say, you know what, Peter? We're going to turn left. At least at that point, you felt heard. You say, you know, you go out to the coffee machine. You're not like, ah, and once again, these guys are idiots. You say, eh, they didn't do what I thought, but th at least they listened to me. Not just, just throw away, oh, we heard you, comma, but we're going to turn left. So, you know, it brings me to this question, which is the leader-leader model, which is what you talk about in the book and what you're talking about now, in a sense, which is, you know, people coming up to you and saying, I intend to do something, and you're empowering people to make their decisions, and the decisions shouldn't be all made by you. That's why the ship runs aground. In that scenario, what's the role of the leader in hierarchy? Meaning, what's your role as commander of the USS Yeah, so one. Uh, there's several roles that the leader still plays. Number one, the, the leader sets the rules. And some people say, well, isn't that just another way of telling people what to do? Well, no. So the, the rule is you got to wear clothes at work. Telling people what to do is put on those pairs, put on that pair of socks. So, the, so, the, so when I said we're going to use the word we, not they on the Santa Fe, we would call that a rule. Like we're going to have a plan. That's a rule. What the plan is, that's, that's on you. So A, the leader makes rules. B, the leader create safety for the people inside the organization. There are real dangers outside the organization. And I turn people on to the work by Simon Sinek in his book, Leaders Eat Last, if you want to read more about this. 
But the idea is inside the organization, we need to make it feel as safe as possible. So at least I'm not worrying about the guy over there talking bad about me or the, the lady back by there trying to steal my job. And number three is the leader brings resources to the team. So the, team, the leader, because the leader is operating at a higher level, usually has a wider uh, ability to array more resources, more time, more money, more team, hire more people, whatever it happens to be. And so the team says, we really need to get this done. We need these resources. The leader's responsible for providing those resources. So there is, I'm not a fan of like blowing up hierarchy. I think that results in a mess. And by the way, it just results in, 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 in secret hierarchy is what it results in because there's always a hierarchy. And, uh, and so the idea is the leader, let's make it visible and then let's just make sure the leader knows what they're responsible for. And my um, final question is one of the hardest things about this, and you talk about this in your book, and I think it's very compelling and true in my experience teaching leaders and working with leaders, is the emotional, the personal emotional ego piece yeah. of this as the leader, meaning that it's very, very hard to let go of control yeah. when you have responsibility. It's hard to to sort of step aside and we might say that's the right thing to do and we might agree that it's important and we might even think we do it, but to actually yeah. take that leap and implement it is both emotionally and even physically very challenging. And I'm curious to get your thoughts on it. Yeah, I totally agree. And it was always a problem for me. This is not a decision you make one day and then it's like, you're good for all time, right? Every day you got to make this decision. I'm, you know, I'm going to resist telling people what to do. And every day when you're under stress, it's going to be hard. So here's, here's an activity that your people can do. Next time you go out to dinner, turn to the waiter and say, you pick my meal and don't play it safe. And that, that's it. Not like, oh, give me three and I'll pick a choice. I don't even want to know what it is till it shows up in front of me. <gasps> Scary. But again, the idea is we change our behavior first. So what you're doing is you're giving up a tiny bit of control. And, th and then all those feelings that come up in you and in the, in, and in the waiter will be replicated at work. So, and so you can do this, and basically we just ramp it up. So I coached some CEOs. I had one guy who said, oh, you can't scare me with your little dinner you know, activity. And I said, okay, fine, we're going to ramp it up. And, okay, you know, uh, this guy was a man, and so I said, you know, let your wife pick the theater tickets, let her pick the show, let her pick where you're going to sit. And then uh, I knew he was going to get – he was looking for a new car. And he's like, you can't scare me with any of this. So I'm like, okay, your wife's picking your next car. What? That's crazy. <laughs> well, it seems like there's something else that has to go along with it, which is the waiter can pick your food and you cannot blame him or her for a poor choice. Exactly. And all this plays out. And then if like – let's say you don't eat uh, beef. And you know, so that's – I would call that clarity. You say like, I don't eat beef, but you can pick anything else, right? Yeah, what I'm thinking of is to say, look, I don't eat beef. I need about 450 calories. Exactly. You figure out the rest. Yeah, perfect. That's perfect. That's clarity, right? Right. That's clarity. Or, you know, lactose, whatever. That's fine to put these bounds on it. Um, it's really, really fun. I mean, we, we, you know. You know what's interesting? Because yeah. I've done this kind of thing before. Yeah. It's interesting when there are some waiters, because this is where you learn about people's willingness to take their own yes. risk. Some waiters who will say, oh, great, awesome, I'm on it. And some would say, no, I'm sorry, you have to choose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're going to give me a bad trip advisor rating or something like that. Yeah, yeah, I know. And, and this is what's going to happen in work, too. So this is why. But again, I could give a lecture all day long about this. But look, guys, just and gals, just. Just go try it. See what happens. Do it 10 times. Right. It's so fun.
Right. It's, you know, the, the leadership intensive that we run, it's a sort of intensive four day program. And it's all about this gap. It's all about closing the gap between what I know needs to happen and what I actually end up doing. Right. And that gap is what I call emotional courage. It's the willingness to feel stuff you don't want to feel and still move forward. Right. Right. David Marquette, Marquet, thank you so much for being on the show. The book is Turn the Ship Around, a true story of turning followers into leaders. The conversation was as interesting as I knew it would be having read the book. It's a fantastic book. It's a real pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Peter. Have a, have a great rest of your day up there in New York. Thanks for listening. Here's what I've learned from working with some of the most successful leaders of the most successful companies. Every leader, every team, and every organization has a leadership gap. If you want to become a leader who inspires your team to get things done, then you've got to start by raising the level of your leadership abilities. You can start by taking our free leadership gap assessment at www.bregmanpartners.com forward slash quiz. Then dive deeper with a copy of my latest book, Leading with Emotional Courage. For more ways to become a truly great leader, check out our online offerings, in-person workshops and events, and my articles at www.bregmanpartners.com. Again, thanks so much for joining me today, and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.